Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How is an equitable education the cornerstone of our democracy? That's our main question for a guest on Future Hindsight today, Ted Pintersmith. He's an avid and outspoken education advocate, as well as the author of What School Could Be, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. With his background as a venture capitalist, he's well-versed in innovation and disruption. And before writing his book, he set out to raise awareness about the urgent need to reimagine education for the future. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. What is your vision of what school could be? It's a hard question to answer because it's not one very narrow defined model. It's the antithesis of standardized where you're supporting and empowering creative differences in classrooms, kids that find distinctive paths forward, teachers that are trusted to teach to their strengths and passions and work with kids in individualized ways. So there's not a cookie cutter one model. There's a whole myriad of exciting, compelling approaches that I think do show us what education could be. So one of the things that you talk about in the book frequently is basically bringing out the child's full human potential. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Naively, years ago, I thought the goal of schools was to develop human potential. But I think the way we've managed the overall education system with the emphasis on no child left behind, race to the top, accountability, testing regimes, the goal of education has turned into ranking kids' potential. It ranks them on these low-level measures of really increasingly irrelevant skills and competencies that are tied to these standardized tests. So as I traveled, I'd see a lot of that. But I also saw these incredibly inspiring examples all over the country. And they shared these four common principles, which were deep and retained knowledge, giving students more agency in their learning, helping students develop essential competencies, and approaching school in a way that gives students a sense of purpose in what they're doing. And so that turned into this acronym PEAK, you know, Purpose, Essentials, Agency, and Knowledge. And all the places I write about showed that in in full glory in terms of what can be done. Not small changes in test scores, but massive changes in student engagement, generating curiosity and opening up great life paths for kids. One of the things that you argue very persuasively is that the American education system is obsolete. And my favorite quote to illustrate this was by a teacher in the Midwest. And she says, if a cow is starving, we don't weigh it, we feed it. Can you elaborate on that? You know, I think it gets at the key issue of, is it more important for kids to learn something that helps them later in life? Or is it more important for kids to study something that's easy to measure? And When I say that, nobody's going to say that we would do the second, but that's what we do. These kids are drilling, whether it's low-level state-mandated exams, which are generally underfunded and poorly conceived, or things like the SAT or ACT or AP courses. And when I interview those kids weeks, months later, and ask them, what do they remember? What did they learn? Oftentimes, if it's an AP course, let's say AP history, they'll say, I learned I never want to take history again. If it's an ACT or an SAT, they learned how to play the game. If they were lucky, if they were in a rich family that could afford a great tutor, they were told, drill on low-level things so you can do them in 15 seconds. If you see a problem that's going to take you a while, skip it. (laughs) 
you know, like what, what a message to kids. If it's hard and ambiguous and you're going to have to work to figure it out, just skip it. And I think that's kind of reflective of the message we deliver to kids in a standardized test-driven environment. It's tempting to blame it on teachers. It is not the teacher's fault. They understand what we've done to schools, what we've done to kids, and what we've done to their ability to practice their craft. But when you impose on schools a set of accountability metrics, put them in the newspaper, bake them into compensation, use those to determine which schools get funded and which don't, you set into play a very corrosive mechanism that really drives all the real learning out of schools. Well, since you mentioned teachers, maybe one of the most uplifting stories in your book is how many teachers are really innovative and really do right by their children and are so dedicated and that you were in the beginning surprised to find this. Which one is maybe your first experience where you thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe what's happening in the classroom is not exactly what you thought it is? I start the second big chapter, which is on K-12, through with this remarkable teacher in Indiana. He was in Fort Wayne, and, you know, he spent 10 years or so in the police force. He's a great big guy. Could be an offensive lineman for the Indianapolis Colts. We do this community forum, and at the very end... He holds up his hand to ask a question. And I thought this guy was going to say, I don't believe a word you were saying. It's the complete opposite. He had coached high school girls softball, got concerned that they weren't learning and weren't really loving learning, went back and got his teaching credential, gets a kindergarten assignment, looks at what the state of Indiana tells him he has to do and goes to his principal and says, do the people who write these regulations ever spend time with five- and six-year-olds? They're telling me I've got to do... 90-minute uninterrupted blocks of reading time. That isn't what most five- and six-year-olds want to do. And he pitches his principal on letting his kids design robots and do 3D printing. And the principal sort of pushes back and says, hey, we have no equipment. And he asks him, do you know anything about it? And Jared Nipper is the teacher. And he says, I know nothing about it. But what was so interesting is he just knew this is what his kids would be interested in. And so he takes these five- and six-year-olds out into Fort Wayne knocks on doors of businesses and said, could you write a check to help us buy this equipment? So they step up. And Jared had the courage to sort of be in front of his class, not knowing it and saying, we're going to learn it together. They learned a lot. And they did really well in their core reading and math skills, despite not explicitly and overtly teaching to a scripted lesson plan. Jared didn't do something that somebody else did that he was copying. This was his passion. He was going to do whatever it took to make it successful. But he also had a principal that had his back. And that's the key. Let teachers do what they know will work with their students and watch a lot of pent-up innovation spring forward. In your opinion, what is the necessary fertile soil? What are the optimal conditions, let's say, that can help initiate this kind of change? I've spent a lot of time working at all levels, you know, governor, superintendent of public instruction, legislators, but lots and lots of schools to sort of co-evolve or co-develop this thing we're calling an innovation playlist, which is small changes that lead to big change over time. So what are little tiny things you could do quickly? Like not next year, not in a five-year strategic plan, but what could we do now to energize our community, get them embracing and owning a different set of goals for our kids, and then start changing a classroom pattern away from perhaps in many cases, kind of somebody talking at the kids and kids taking notes, 
transferring more of the learning to the students, starting to introduce more project-based work into the classroom experience. You're an advocate of project-based learning, and you describe in the book that the best math challenge you've encountered was in a middle school social studies class. Mm, And uh, the students were challenged to come up with ways to predict the world's population in the year 2100. Tell us more about that. There's an irony, right, that the best math challenge I'd see is in eighth grade social studies. What they did was they said, work alone or in small teams, use whatever resources you want, but come up with your own way to predict what the world's population will be in 2100. Prepare a presentation and explain how you got there to your classmates and be prepared to respond to their constructive and thoughtful questions. And when they present, be prepared to ask thoughtful questions. And then when we sort of given everybody a chance to iterate, make sure there aren't any fundamental flaws, then let's have a discussion on the range of outcomes that kids predict. What will it mean to grow up in a world that's headed to X billion people? And what was interesting about it is that there is no right answer. The reality is that we don't teach real math in schools. We teach narrow arithmetic. And the reason we teach these low-level procedures that have just one right answer is they're perfect fodder for the standardized test. Whereas the real math, the math that matters, is creative and conceptual. And so, for instance, back to this projection, I mean, one set of kids segmented the, the globe's population by religion and then found the data on the last 20 years of net growth rate per year by religion, and then fast-forwarded those growth rates to 2100. Is that right or wrong? I don't think you can say it's right or wrong, but can you say that's interesting and creative and conceptual? Absolutely. And so those kids should be rewarded for coming up with a great approach. But could you put that on a standardized test? (laughs) Not a chance. And so, again, we teach what's easy to test, not what's important to learn. And math shows that in spades. I love this story. I love this challenge. What, in your mind, is the value of this type of education? How is it bringing us forward and making us stronger as a society today and into the future? Well, I mean, anything and everything that's routine will be handled by machine intelligence. My issue is in most schools today, Kids will be on the honor roll if they're really good at memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures, and following instructions. That's exactly what machine intelligence excels at. That said, if you have kids learn how to leverage machine intelligence, have kids think creatively, when kids are getting really good at things that are far more reflective of our basic human potential, things you see in every four- and five-year-old, you know, they ask a million questions, they learn at warp speed, They think outside the box. They don't worry a bit about failing. They'll just keep going at it and at it and at it. Why is it we don't see those characteristics in our high school kids? You know, most high school classes I observe, the only question I hear is, will this be on the test? And I profile this anecdote in North Dakota where an amazing second grade teacher gives a day a week of free exploration time. They call it genius time. And she has the ultimate and best form of accountability. You have to teach your classmates about what you've learned. And it's brilliant. Go to a different part of the state. High school teacher in an English class thinks this is a great idea. Says to his juniors, one day a week, you can have a class period to work on whatever you're interested in. Half of those kids did a Google search. What should I be interested in? And you realize that's not the kid's fault. When you back up the clock when they were four and five, they had a million things they were interested in. But if you numb them over a period of year in and year out of test prep and low-level drilling and 
trying to do these insane things that are on these standardized tests. If you don't agree with what I'm saying about these tests, go look at some practice questions online and then ask yourself, if somebody gets really good at answering these, is that at all useful in life? And the answer is, it is not. And so they're done by some bureaucrat who just says, oh, I need to get the data. This is a cost-effective way to largely precisely measure kids' lack of progress on material they'll never use and don't care about. That makes no sense to me. So in your mind, what do you think is the most damaging false narrative about education today? Well, I go to a lot of events and I'll get business cards from people where somewhere on the card it will say education. And their view on education is it's simple, right? Higher test scores, more rigorous college-ready content, more kids off to four-year colleges. If we can do those three things, we will be succeeding in education. And then we have this myth and view that every kid has to go to four-year college. We need to have a much healthier view, more like Finland has, where half the kids self-select for a non-college route. What if we said the goal of education is to put kids in a place where they no longer need costly formal instruction, where they know what they want to accomplish and they can learn how to learn and find the things they need to know? It's a very different goal, but we don't do that. We use elementary school to prepare kids for middle school, to prepare them for high school, to prepare for the college application, to prepare for introductory college courses, on and on and on. Education should prepare kids for life, but we have it backwards. We contort kids' lives toward the goals of education. Education should be a means to self-directed, fulfilled, skill-equipped young adults. Respect all paths that lead to somebody that's good citizen, who's self-supporting, cares about their family, and who can make a contribution to their community. If you just peeled back 10-20% of the college-ready content that I argue kids aren't retaining, if kids spent some time developing a really distinctive hireable proficiency, they are going to be able to move into adulthood with this liberating feeling of knowing they can support themselves. One example, but it speaks for so many, incredibly gifted artist was not going to graduate from high school because she couldn't pass algebra. But Vermont had a very progressive approach, and they had these programs where you could kind of substitute things for other re firm requirements. And so she pitched them on, could I replace algebra with teaching myself how to design websites? Which she did. Think about this young woman who now graduates from high school, can make 20, 30 bucks an hour or more designing websites for people, bringing her great artistic talent to that, and support herself so that in her extra time, she might be able to support herself just fine on 20 hours a week of website design. That's one kid, but that's millions of kids. Your concluding chapter is called It Takes a Village, which is, of course, so apt given that you have this advocacy for project-based learning. Why do you think that collaborative learning, innovative education, and equitable schools are the cornerstone of our democracy? Something that I think we've lost sight of in our country today is Americans respond to a challenge. I think today the failing of education, the fact we're letting millions of kids go through this process and letting them down, not equipping them with the skills that matter, whether it's citizenship or career, it's every bit as big a threat to our democracy. Our kids trust us to give them the kind of education that's going to get them ahead. We need to do that for them. We did step up over a century ago when we said we're going from agriculture to manufacturing and said, what do we need to change in our schools to better prepare our population for a totally different world? This country can do it. 
I think the really interesting question on the table is, will we do it? And the last thing I make is, school is local. A school community bands together and says, we're going to bring careful thought and collective action to giving our kids the kind of education that will serve them well and to trusting the role of our teachers in that process. You are super passionate. What is the source of your passion? Because not everybody does the kind of thing that you do. Travel around the country and visit all these schools, spend all this time, write the book, sponsor a movie. Why is this so important to you? You know, when when I kind of connected these dots, which is now about a decade ago, as millions come through a system not prepared for career and citizenship, it's potentially very destabilizing to civil society. I started to say to my friends, we don't change schools profoundly and urgently. I'm not convinced our democracy will survive. I think people thought I had lost it. Today, when I say that to audiences, which I do, I'm not getting people looking at me with a puzzled look. There are nods. People see it happening. And it's getting easier and easier to create something, whether it's a written document with footnotes or a video, that's completely made up to misrepresent what's actually going on. If that happens and then it gets out to the community and the community wants to believe it and they haven't been equipped with critical thinking skills, even the ability to do basic fact-checking, and it spreads and spreads like wildfire, you get horrible, horrible things that happen. And we're already seeing it. If we don't start equipping ourselves with the kind of citizenship skills so that we can act responsibly, it devolves into mob psychology. And, and we've seen this play out in history before. I have a question about the inequities in the system. You argue that education has become the modern American caste system. And in the discussions and angst about test score gaps, we confuse social inequity as a classroom issue. The true gap, however, is that we spend much more to educate the rich than the poor. How can innovative education address this inequity? Well, there's a discussion we want to avoid, which is we do spend so much more on the well-off kids and the, the kids that need the most help. I mean, I think we owe every newborn kid a fighting chance. And so that's going to require some expenditures. And one of the things I call out regularly is the lunacy of saying we need to increase our Defense Department budget by $70 billion. We need to expand our nuclear arsenal. Russia showed us in 2016 how a couple million bucks a month for social media interference could destabilize our society. And yet we're wanting to buy more generally obsolete weapon systems that aren't geared up toward the modern world. Don't tell me we don't have the budget dollars to give kids healthy nutrition and adequate preschool. Those monies are there. I say that we only have two things wrong when it comes to achievement gap. The first is gap and the second is achievement. So to get off the hook for that uncomfortable discussion, let's turn it into test scores as the gap so we can put the blame on the students and the teachers. So teachers fighting valiantly for these kids who come to school starving and their test scores aren't quite as high. Aha, we got to fix those schools and those teachers and those students. We don't want to fix the fundamental values of our democracy. We want to fix those kids and students. But those achievements are measured by these mindless standardized tests. What I observe and what I write about is when you give these kids the opportunity to create their own initiatives and those initiatives are authentic and do make their world better in important ways and require them to be out-of-the-box thinkers and to fail multiple times and get back on their feet. Over and over again, teachers, principals, adults, parents will tell me, I had no idea what they were capable of. And, and the reality is 
they're capable of an enormous amount if it's something they want to do. The money required to give them a great chance in life will be paid off in multiples by their contributing back to society as an adult. We just need a wake-up call when it comes to our fundamental values. Mm-hmm. Indeed we do. So what do you think everyday citizens can do to get engaged here and make this situation better? If you're involved with the school, you can work constructively with them and say, how can I help you do the things you know you need to do to help your kids? But I think it's time we start insisting that the legislators that shove these tests down the throats of our kids and teachers start taking these tests and making their scores public. I think we can start advocating for budgets that make sense in elections, voting for people that reflect the priorities we have. I also think there's just this important urgency. When our basic standards of honesty, decency, and integrity begin to erode, what difference do policies make? What difference does GDP make? Do we really have a nation we're proud of? It's back to a real opportunity for all of us to sort of do a bit of reflection and introspection and go back and look at what our parents or grandparents were willing to do in the 1940s to preserve the free world, to give people a real chance to live the life they deserve to live. And I think preserving and giving our kids the best possible options for the future to equip them to solve the problems we didn't step up to, I can't think of a more aspirational goal for us to take on. Yes, here, here. You've seen bright lights everywhere. What makes you hopeful? When you meet these younger kids, it's incredible. What I find as I travel is you've opened the door, give them a chance to make a difference. They want to do that. When I go to these communities, we're on an issue that's not partisan, on an issue of preparing our kids for the future they're going to live in. And people come together, and they are thoughtful and respectful toward each other. And they set big goals for themselves and then actually outperform on those goals. When they bring real trust to our teachers who are dedicated beyond belief, remarkable things happen. We're going to start taking some of these important issues on ourselves and ignore state capitals and ignore legislators and ignore federal government and start doing the most important thing we can do to preserve a great future for our country, which is equip our kids with the right mindsets and skill sets and trust and support our teachers who are dedicating their lives to doing that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, and thanks for your show. In all the debates on how to improve education and serve our children to be prepared for the future, we often lose sight about the true purpose of learning and going to school. TED's advocacy serves as a potent reminder that our goal is to develop a child's full human potential. Moreover, he makes a direct connection to the danger that our society faces when we fail to deliver an equitable, high-quality education for all. Our democracy thrives when citizens possess critical thinking skills and the capacity for independent thinking in order to partake responsibly in our communities. Machine learning is making exponential progress, which means that all low-level procedures will soon no longer be done by humans. We must, therefore, find a way to give our children the best possible opportunities to be creative and conceptual thinkers. Our collective future depends on it. 
Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.